enjoy the show. Beaming at you from the depths of the internet. This is the Temple of Geek Podcast, your one stop for all things geek. Welcome to the Temple of Geek Podcast. For those of you tuning in for the first time, my name is Aaron. I'll be your host tonight as we discuss everything revolving around ska music. This is going to be a great show. This is going to be a cool show because it it has some information that I'm not that knowledgeable about, but I have some working knowledge on it, but I'm going to learn a lot today. So we're all going to learn a lot together. Temple of Geek Podcast, we've been around since 2012. Here we discuss and celebrate fandoms and all things geek. And for our returning listeners, thank you again for tuning in. With me today is our special guest, fellow Aaron American, author and music journalist, Aaron Carnes. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. No problem. Thank you for, for being on. You have a book coming out soon, or or by the time this airs, will it be out or is it coming out still? Oh, we have a, a few months. It's going to come out on May 4th. Uh, this year may 4th. see that's another geeky day for you guys may 4th I know. got a new book coming out they're all coming together yeah perfect perfect tell us the title of the book it's called in defense of ska give give us a little background of what exactly ska music is before i give my definition of it. ska music actually goes back all the way to jamaica in the 1950s the music was a combination of the, the traditional folk music which was called mento there was also influence from American R&B and jazz music. And within those elements, they created this sort of upbeat music that kind of flipped the drum beat around to like American R&B and just had a very, very danceable, you know, rhythm to it. Really, right. really awesome music. That music eventually evolved into rocksteady, then reggae, then roots reggae, which is kind of the, the version of the music most people know, like the, the, the later Bob Marley stuff that people are familiar with. In the late 70s, ska music got revived by some English. It was a combination of English punk rockers and mods and some Caribbean immigrants. There was a a handful of bands. We call it Two-Tone. It's because there was a record label called Two-Tone, but the bands were The Specials, Selector, Madness, English Beat. Well, they were actually called The Beat, but in America, we called them The English Beat. And uh, Bad Manners, Body Snatchers. So this was Two-Tone. This music was extraordinarily popular in England. It was was top 10 pop music, but it was also really political. It was very anti-racist. It was like, it was pop music with substance and it had this influence of old Jamaican ska music and punk rock, you know, the British punk rock of the time. Elsewhere, it didn't catch on super big elsewhere, like especially in the US. It was like, there was a cult fan here in the US and, and other countries but it sort of percolated, you know, you had all these scenes start up in the 80s in the US, all these bands like the Untouchables in LA and Bim Scala Bim in Boston. And there was this underground thing that happened for like 15 years in the US that eventually exploded into what a lot of people called third wave ska, which was like this radio MTV moment of ska music for bands like Real Big Fish and Mighty Bunny Bostones and Save Ferris and stuff, Goldfinger. And then the music got unpopular because right. it was like people didn't really understand the context of ska music. The people that were hearing about it on MTV, it was framed as like this sort of trend, which it wasn't. It's old music that had been not not. It's not just that it was old, that it was dated back from Jamaica. But even in the U.S., it was a very healthy, vibrant DIY scene. But it wasn't really framed that way. And so, you know, it's just like, oh, it's the latest thing is ska music. And then the kind of 
put a handful of bands on the MTV that were a little on the goofier side. Right. Whereas a lot of the ska bands, even at the time in the U.S., were not that goofy. It was a mix of bands, you know, bands that were doing political music, bands that were doing love songs, bands that were doing personal songs, you know, bands that were being goofy. It was all kind of a spectrum of ska at the time. But, you know, MTV says, you know, this is the music and, you know, People wear Hawaiian shirts and plaid suits, <laughs> so it's goofy music. And so, you know, after a few years of that being like kind of rammed down everyone's throat, all of a sudden it's like, oh, man, we are embarrassed of this music. And it just falls, plummets. And people who got into the music in that lens, they got really embarrassed by it and, you know, pretended they never liked it. Right. A lot of the bands started to like back away from the music and say, oh, we're not a ska band. We play rock with horns and, and stuff like that. So you have like a couple decades since then that where it's the perception has been that ska was this 90s trends that died and nobody cares about it anymore. When in reality, ska has maintained a pretty healthy underground scene for the last 20 years and continues to have new bands and young artists continue to play it and young people continue to get into it and doing really interesting stuff. I mean, some of the bands that um, put out albums last year put out some of like some amazing records and, and I think really in line with what ska was before it got popular, which is political and musically interesting and, and all this stuff. But it's really hard for people to, you know, get into it because they, there's so much of this perception of what ska it's kind of like product placement like if you put something out and you give it the maximum exposure people think that that's the only thing that there is about it and yeah. that's where kind of like the misconception of it comes from because like you said ska's been around since the 50s and when you hear the word ska you go straight to the like the mid to late 90s like my mind mentally exactly. went when i heard the name of the book i was like oh here we go we're going to talk about what 311 and and, and sublime <laughs> which every party that i went to in college you better believe a 311 song or some sublime would play and not even all of their music literally one or two songs like <laughs> yeah so scott has some scott has some baggage yeah we should say you know you know like there's a band uh from new orleans that basically put out their first record last year called bad operation uh -huh. and i think one of the best albums from last year it's just kind of gritty kind of mid-tempo ska, really meaningful lyrics, you know, political. You know, these guys have an uphill battle with the, you know, with the audience, the punk audience, the alternative audience to be like, hey, we're a ska band. We make, you know, good, interesting music that has something to say. We're not silly at all. So, you know, people who are into ska are like really into this band. But to kind of break out of that audience, it's like they have to get pierced that stereotype and stuff that are in a lot of people's minds. Let's back up just a little bit. So what what inspired you to write this book? I've also written books as well, too. And there's a lot of, a lot of different things that have gone through my mind and say, hey, you know, what? why don't I write a book about this? So is this your first book? Yes. Okay. What was the spark that hit you to write this book? So I was a big fan of ska in the 90s. I was a teenager. Well, I, was, I, I graduated high school in 92. So okay. or 93. Pardon me. I got into ska in 92. I graduated high school in 93. So that whole kind of early to mid-90s period, I was really into ska. And that was before it got on the radio. And I was still a fan of it going into that period. But years later, I become a music journalist in like 2010. And the more I get deeper into being a music journalist and reading more like music books and, and stuff written about that's critically analyzes music, I kind of like realized that ska is just like a lost chapter in history, you know, because yeah. people don't take it seriously enough. 
to kind of give it that treatment. And that was what inspired me. This was going back to 2013. I, I had this idea in 2013. I was like, I want to do something for ska because I love this music. Everyone, everyone treats it like it's a joke. And, and I understand where the joking about it comes from, but there's also this, all this interesting stuff to say about it. But I kind of didn't understand how to do it yet. So that's why it took me so long is because I was trying to figure out how I wanted to tell this book. And then I think it dawned on me that you can't really like tell all the cool, interesting things about Scott without sort of addressing the elephant in the room and that it's a joke to most people. So yeah. we have to defend it first and foremost. But after we're done offending, defending it, we can like then tell the interesting stories and stuff. How long was the process in writing this book? Um, it was about a seven year process, oh, yeah. but um, I know it was very long. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the first the first five years I was um, I was unclear what I was trying to say. So I was collecting interviews and doing like different drafts and trying to find something that felt like it was right. It wasn't really until 2018 when I, I made a book proposal in 2018 because I felt like I was spinning my wheels a little bit. Uh -huh. And I felt like I needed to I needed to have somebody agree to publish this book and sort of force me to write it. Yeah. And but the process of writing the proposal, well, that's when I decided that it was a defense. That's when it clicked in my head, like, this is what the book is. This is how I'm going to do it. I got Clash Books. They were, the, they were the one publisher that took an interest. They signed the contract. Uh, we, signed, we did a contract in the summer of 2018. And then it was like full-time top priority from like, you know, late 2018 till about beginning of 2020 okay. is when pretty much we're done. Yeah. The before times. But, yeah, but I had a bunch of interviews I'd already collected before that contract. Oh, so. okay. Cool. Yeah, so, yeah, when you say seven years, I'm like, wow. That's... I mean, like, there's <laughs> there's no there's no right or wrong answer to how long it should take to write a book. Let me just put that out there to anybody who's thinking about writing a book. I've written several books, and it's it's it takes time because you got to write, you got to rewrite. You might like something mm -hmm. one day, you might not like it another day. It's like picking your favorite song. It's impossible to do, but sometimes you got to do it. Yeah, and when you're writing, when you're writing nonfiction too, and that's heavily based on research. Yeah, I mean, sometimes just the research itself and the interviewing—that's a whole process that you have to go through that might not even immediately equal into words on the page. Exactly, and it's a lot of legal stuff you got to go through as well when you're writing nonfiction mm -hmm. and you're writing like a book with full-on research in it too because it's a lot that goes into writing a book besides like no one just wakes up one day and be like hey you know what i'm just gonna crank out 180 pages on this one thing and everything's gonna be fine that, <laughs> that, that, yeah. that doesn't work that way so did you did you go to college for music journalism i did not i went to college for film okay because i thought i wanted to be a filmmaker and i did some work and i made a documentary or i helped produce a documentary I, i'm I was living in San Jose, California at the time, and me and a couple guys were old. You know, we were we were from the music scene of San Jose, and we made this documentary about a music club in San Jose called the Cactus Club that was um, started in like the late '80s and closed in 2002. It was like the main, main, main like place where the music scene existed in our you know our time growing up. So we wanted to document it. That was probably the main thing I did, but I, I just felt I don't know. With film, I think the thing that I I didn't enjoy once I was actually doing it and getting past the fantasy of being a filmmaker is that kind of working with other people and having to kind of go on their schedules and their priorities was really challenging for me. When I got into writing, 
I really liked that I could work alone and I could set my own deadlines and, and set my own schedules and kind of be the boss and be the worker, you know? Yeah, I, I completely feel that in my soul because one of the best things <laughs> about being a writer is I'm on my own time for the most part. And I thrive when I'm left to my own devices and I can just, you know, be mm. in my own space and get something done. Uh, so, yeah, exactly what you just said. I, I felt that every bit of it. So, yeah, I... I, I, after the documentary was done, I mean, I was proud of it and everything, but I was trying to, I, I was trying to reach out to some like local newspapers and publications where I lived and talk to the local weekly where I lived in San Jose is called Metro. And I said, oh, you know, that documentary, you know, you probably seen the documentary, you know, cause people in town had seen it. They're like, yeah, okay. yeah. So that definitely kind of gave me a leg up in, in writing about music at the local weekly paper. So it was a nice, it was a nice transition. And as soon as I started doing it, I was like, yes, I enjoy this. I enjoy the act of this more than doing film. Well, and, and that's, and that's all part of the game too. Like you'll go into something be like, yeah, this is what I love doing. And then you actually find out what you really love doing. Sometimes it works out where you actually originally go into something be like, oh yeah, this is what I really love doing. But then, you know, sometimes the job you have, it leads you to the job you want. So exactly. Yeah. Back to Scott. Now, before you became a fan of ska music, what kind, what what were you listening to? What was so this is like the '90s. So what was in your uh, CD Walkman? Um, so I grew up in a really religious household, okay. so I didn't get exposure to good music for uh, <laughs> maybe <laughs> like maybe junior high, early high school. I think I kind of was able to start, you know, weaning myself off of the Christian music my family was like intent on me listening to. And, um, like for me, there was like a local alternative station. I, I grew up in this town called Gilroy, California. Oh, it's kind I, of the Southern tip of the Bay area. Yeah. You yeah. Know Gilroy. Yeah. Yeah. Garlic capital of the world. I, I know. Right. That's the, their claim to fame is literally garlic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you go, you go into Gilroy. I don't, I don't anymore, even though I don't live there, but people have told me that, oh yeah. Second I drove into Gilroy, I just smell the garlic. Yeah. <laughs> so I got there was a radio station in San Francisco still exists it's called it was called Live 105 at the time they played alternative music but it was like it was very much alternative music because prior to Nirvana and sort of that explosion all that music was like not mainstream so okay. I would listen I would sit there and listen to this radio station and and listen to bands like The Cure and Depeche Mode and Midnight Oil and I just like loved the stuff I loved the I loved how weird their band names were I loved like just to kind of inch how interesting the music was. And I, I, that was like the music for me. But then um, at some point I kind of got interested in live music. And so the idea of seeing like the live music in the small venues had a real appeal to me. Yeah. And so I would, I would start checking out, you know, either like going to the shows that were at clubs or just getting tapes of bands that I had heard about or seen their listings in the clubs and for at the time, the thing that was really big in the Bay Area was like the sort of funk, funk rock stuff. So and that's like early Primus, for instance, okay. bands also like Fungo Mungo. I think one of the members of that band eventually became uh, started or was in Third Eye Blind. Yeah. Early, early Mr. Bungle was part of that scene. Stuff like that kind of fascinated me um, because I just liked that it was like these bands would play these like clubs with a couple hundred people and stuff so but through that through kind of getting involved with that somebody told me he said hey you got to check out this band skank and pickle <laughs> they're a band yeah 
they were a band also from the San Jose area and uh, they were ska band, you know, I didn't know what ska was though, but I went to the show and it just completely blew my mind. I was just like, this music is awesome. It's really fun. It's not, it's like really fast, but it's not angry. They would, it was, they had like fun and, and silly songs, but they also had like anti-racist songs and, and songs that had meaning as well. So they kind of mixed it up and they had like this theatrical element to it where there was like costumes, like the, one of the guys, the bass player, he was, he was totally bald, but he wore a wig on his head, but you didn't know if you had never seen them before that it was a wig. Right. And then like three or four songs into the set, he starts doing this whole thing about, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not only the, I'm not only a hair club client, I'm also the president. And he like throws his wig off, revealing that he's like a fully bald man. And he sings this song about how, um, you know, about how he's bald and that he goes out in the sun and, and it burns his head. So, <laughs> but at the time you're just like, whoa, <laughs> what's going on? But everyone that I had been there before, you know, as soon as he starts that, like, I'm not only a client, they all start laughing because they all know it's coming. It's like a bit they did, right? Right. So they had all kinds of stuff like that. That same guy, he wrote a unicycle on stage. I mean, this just blew my mind as a kid. But I got the album too. And I just like listened to it over and over again. I just loved it. It just, I didn't, you know, it sent me on this path to learn what ska was. Nice. So you named a, a couple different bands with some of the most unique band names I've ever heard. And I, and I think I think we can both agree <laughs> that it's something about a band name that's like kind of cool. Something about that kind of like lures you in to like kind of yeah. listen to be like, wait a minute, I, I got to listen to the group called the Skanky Pickles. I got I, I got I got to check them out. Because <laughs> when you hear that name, you like and, and, and I'm probably I'm probably either really wrong or really right about this. I've never listened to the Skanky Pickles, but. If I'm almost positive that if I do, I'm gonna find some of the most soulful music I've ever heard in my life. Skank and Pickle were they were like really they were kinda wacky, but they were also really really diverse. Like like they did like fast ska songs, they did punk and metal stuff, they did reggae stuff, they did funk stuff. They did like they tried to just so totally cover the gamut. I mean, Fishbone was probably their like biggest influence. Nice. And Fishbone did everything and they did yeah. everything as good as they could Fishbone so that was sort did. of their yeah fishbone their is model. one of my dad's favorite bands and I, I he he had me listen to them a lot and they they did no two songs sounded the same in, in most cases like fishbone were most 90s ska bands favorite band because they basically established the 90s ska sound in the 80s oh yeah so everybody Everybody who was like playing ska was like Fishbone was like Fishbone should have been the band that got really popular, but, but they weren't. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, they kind of imploded before um, they before '95. They imploded, so they didn't really they weren't really in a good position to like take advantage of the ska explosion that was happening in the U.S. Now we're we're in the live music phase and stuff, and then you know ska comes around. You're in college. Now, what what other genres of music do you listen to? You're a music journalist, so I'm I'm assuming that you've been around yeah. different exposures of music. What kind of music do you absolutely love that you weren't you were never exposed to uh, prior? And what kind of music do you absolutely hate? Go. I I like most kinds of music at this point in my life, and it's, it continues to kind of grow and grow as I get older. But you know, I think the kind of music I listen to besides ska these days is like actually mo mostly like kind of 
chill music, you know, be like kind of indie indie music. Mm-hmm. And I like older rock and roll and soul and stuff like that too. Older older country. I like hip hop a lot. What's interesting to me, and I think part of what drove this book a little bit, is that a lot of the music I like is the kind of music that Pitchfork would would talk about and would like review very positively. So I'm I'm like a lot of my tastes are in line with like what's acceptable music. Got it. Except for ska is not acceptable music. So it kind of like feels this like weird thing. Like, why is it that this one kind of music I like is just kind of like, nope. (laughs) It's like ska is like the insane clown posse genre of music. Like there are people who absolutely love it, but most people treat it like a complete joke, which myself included. I'm a stand up comedian. I've made fun of ska music on stage before, mostly because it's a cheap laugh to get. It's an easy it's an easy joke. But for the most part, when it comes to music, like if it's made well and it's made by people who actually believe in it and stuff, I I can dig it. I I don't dislike most types of music. I I would say that I dislike certain artists and like their music isn't for me. But for sure, their genre and stuff is you know, whatever, you know, like, like pop music, it's pop because it's popular. It's a machine behind it that makes it that way. And, you know, it's not for me. I don't have to listen to it. I'm one of those weird ones who I grew up in uh, the South side of Chicago, uh, predominantly black neighborhood. I grew up listening to uh, Genesis, which I still listen to, to this day. Um, (laughs) Little secret. Most black people that you come across, we fucking love Genesis, particularly oh, Bill yeah. Collins's version. We love it. Yeah, um, no, that's 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 the version Genesis. for sure. Yeah. Also, being from Chicago, I love Chicago. You brought up rock and roll bands with horns. Uh, you got to give it up to the original Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and they were awesome. They oh they they were absolutely awesome. It, it's just sad that they couldn't they could not get along at all when they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, I think Peter Cetera even said, I got other things to do. I was like, wow, okay. Did you see the uh, Chicago documentary on, I think, Netflix? That he refused to be part of? Yeah, yes, it was I did. super <laughs> interesting. Yeah, yeah, I was like, that's your voice on most of the songs, and you just refuse to show up to it. Um, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I think for me, the only kind of music I, genres, I just don't really get into very much is usually like the extreme side of things, like you know, like grindcore and like speed metal, yeah. like these things. I'm not like, I don't know, like really hard, hard electronic. Like I like electronic music that's pop oriented, has vocals and stuff mm-hmm. like that, that kind of the outer edge, edge of these kind of extreme music. It just doesn't really do much for me. Right. And, and I'm I'm the same way. It's like, it's just certain things. I'm just like, Oh, okay. It's, it's great that you like that, but please never play that around me again. And, <laughs> Just, <laughs> I also love like '80s rock and roll is is my jam. I I love it to death. Sure. And, and Prince is my absolute favorite musician of all time. Which Prince has had his hand in Scott music as well, because I, I can think of one mm-hmm. song in particular that he sampled parts of Fishbone in it. So I was like, oh, Prince. I feel like you know people. I think people have come around on like really giving him his due. But I feel like as a songwriter. He's just like he really deserves like the utmost like respect as a songwriter. When you listen to the songs that he, that he wrote that he didn't play that other people made famous, yep. And you just listen to the, the diversity of those songs, and you're like, holy shit, Prince wrote that? Exactly. I had no idea. You're like, wow. 
and then I what what bothers me and oh let me before before I say this uh you've never done one of those greatest guitarist lists have you no no I haven't you haven't okay cool perfect so no. you're not you're not part of this my biggest gripe is when I see a greatest guitar players list and Prince usually is nowhere to be found on it or nowhere where he should yeah. be which is at the very top yeah for sure get how that's possible when it comes to people say, oh no, he Jimi Hendrix was the best guitar player. I'm like, was he really though? Because like, and, <laughs> and Jimmy was bad. Jimmy was he was a good dude on the on the guitar. I'm not taking that away from him. However, P- Prince could play that shit in his sleep with with his feet. Let's just call it what it is. But th- this isn't a musical debate or anything like that. Everybody knows that Prince can't be touched on guitar. Uh, don't at me. But. <laughs> <laughs> So who who are your favorite ska bands? Kank and Pickle was my definitely my favorite band at the time, and they'll always be my favorite. I don't think their recordings quite held up mm. in an, uh, in an, enough for people who weren't there at the time to listen to them and be like, yes, this is definitely the best band. But although Mike Park, the the saxophone player, um, has gone on to do some other projects, and I feel like actually some of it's much better than Skank and Pickle, just recording and, and song wise. So. It, Definitely feel like Mike Park's a, a big, big person in ska. He, he kind of has solo projects that he just starts and stops. Like he has a, he did a thing called Bruce Lee Band off and on for a while, which are really good. He had a band called the Chinkies. He's a, he's an Asian American and uh, he put together an all Asian American band and he deliberately used the slur as sort of, to sort of like reclaim it and kind of comment on racism towards Asian Americans. Right. And that was the Chinkies. Yeah. And the Chinkies recordings are phenomenal. Fishbone is absolutely uh, the, the best American ska band, hands down. If you listen to their first EP and their first two albums, it's not all ska, but the ska stuff and everything else around it is just amazing. I, I mean, they should be they should be considered like one of the best American bands, period. Absolutely. Their, their, totally album, Truth, their album Truth and Soul is just like a masterpiece. Just a masterpiece. The specials and the selector from the two-tone era, I think, uh, put out just just amazing albums. I feel like those are really good albums to show people that maybe don't have a positive attitude towards ska. You say, like, listen to these two albums. And I think that they will, there'll be no way that they can deny that they're not good albums. Well, I was going to say Operation Ivy, of course, is, is like, especially for punk rockers, most punk rockers who hate ska will admit that Operation Ivy is a good band because they are absolutely a good band. <laughs> right. And also, yeah, I just want to say Hepcat are probably, I, I think, one of the best bands from the 90s, an L.A. band. They did a more traditional Jamaican-style ska band, They were, but they were an, a band from L.A. They mixed in a lot of like modern soul music with uh, traditional Jamaican ska and a little bit of Latin stuff here. Real good like grooves, like a lot of love songs, really good like vocal harmonies and stuff. You can't really beat Hepcat, like danceable ska music. Nice. For those listening, Fishbone's first two LP, first two EPs, I'm sorry, were called In Your Face, which came out in 1986, and Truth and Soul, which came out in 1988. They also had an, uh, a self-titled EP before those, and the, the self-titled EP, six songs, that, that's the most ska thing they've ever done. It's got like four of the six songs are just straight up ska songs, Okay, and and it sounds like kind of what the bands in the 90s were doing just really fast fun but like satirical so it's like maybe seems goofy on the top but it's actually got a point to the lyrics like um party at ground zero is a pretty well-known song from that ep and 
they're really commenting on a lot of the Reagan politics and like an anti-war song and, and nuclear and you know nuclear weapons and stuff. But it sort of sounds silly when you first tell it, but it's you know it's not at all. So that that EP is like a landmark EP in terms of like a, a change of the ska sound here in the U.S. I think a lot of the hatred that goes towards ska is not towards the music itself, but towards some of the some of the people who listen to it and how they work. Because like it, it was, let's just be honest. Like when you see, and I was part of this too. I wore Hawaiian shirts all in the late '90s, early 2000s, and stuff. <laughs> I, that was just a fashion thing. I don't know. I don't. I don't know where it came from. It was just one day we all was just like, "Hey, let's go wear Hawaiian shirts," and we all did like Hawaiian shirts and cargo pants. There was a certain kind of douche who would dress like that. And I think most of the mm-hmm. hate towards ska music went towards people who, who just the worst people who were listening to ska. Not to say that everybody who listened to it were the worst people. <laughs> no, there's bad people in every genre of music fandom. But I think ska just got kind of like oversaturated with that like yeah. that Hawaiian shirt who who doesn't work in Trader Joe's looking kind of douche, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and I think that the perception about ska was that, oh, you know, this used to, you know, maybe this used to be interesting music, but now it's just a bunch of suburban white kids right. who are the bands and who are the fans. And I I don't think it was an, a real accurate representation of who the, the bands were on a, a larger scope, even in the 90s. I mean, there were so many bands that were diverse and there were so many fans that were diverse, but... You know, yes, it did get into the suburbs, but that was still only a piece of it. That piece got a lot of exposure, though. But I mean, you got to understand, like, I, I don't necessarily blame the bands or the fans because it, yeah. it was MTV and the radio that pushed, obviously, because they're going to push the suburban white, you know, safe bands. That's who they're going to push. That's who they feel comfortable marketing. And that's who they feel comfortable, comfortable marketing, too. So that's the side of it they're going to they're going to amplify when, in fact, that's not. That's definitely not the full extent of ska. Some genres that is the full extent of them, but not ska. Even like today, you know, you see like some of the biggest audiences for ska are, are Latinos, and, and like Latino communities have big ska scenes. You know, bands that come from those communities, and you don't really hear about that much, and that's not really presented as like the ska band and the ska audience. But you know, it, it is. It is a big part of it. So I so I just learned something new that like that Scott has a huge Latino fan base and that goes in with another thing that there's a huge Latino fan base for uh Morrissey as well. Uh my wife just said my wife just said, Yeah, my <laughs> wife is Colombian. She's like, Yep. I'm like So I'm like I, when I heard that, the first time I heard it, I was like, What? And then I was like, no, seriously. Like, uh, and I, then then I, I made it make sense. I was like, oh, yeah, well, there are a lot of black people who like Genesis. So, you know. <laughs> There's something about like New Wave in general that like is kind of resonates in the Latino community. But Morrissey, Morrissey in particular is big there. And I I have read about it. And I still don't exactly get it. <laughs> I don't. I don't exactly get it either. They even make fun of it in like the uh, Ant Man and the Wasp movie. Yeah, like yeah. they they really quickly they do that, and I'm just like, huh. Uh, also, um, there there's a ska song uh, or uh, I think that is either a song or a band called the Zoot Suit Riot. That was a, that was a song, and that was Cherry Pop and Daddy. Yeah, my wife my wife just helped out with that one too. Zoot Suit Riots was also like that was that was another like very significant event 
in Latino history here in L.A. That song was more of a swing song than a ska song, but it happened at the same time. Yeah, it was at the same moment that the ska yeah. thing was happening. Because like that was that weird time where swing came back in style, too, you know? Well, the Cherry Pop and Daddies, that was a big swing song, but they had they were playing ska as well as swing. So they, they were they were doing kind of all that, but they kind of got their swing song caught on. So they really like latched onto that part of their song base and their image and stuff. Also, let me just go ahead and just clarify. Uh, Cherry Pop and Daddies, not a good band name. No, <laughs> terrible, terrible band Awful name. Awful band name. Does not stand the test of time at all. You know what's funny is I saw them play... Um, Actually, the first the first Skank and Pickle show, the one I was talking about before, the one that was like my exposure to the music. Yeah. The Cherry Pop and Daddies were the opening act, the first opening oh, act. Oh, wow. But, and I, and I dug them, you know, they were cool. They had like a, they had ska swing and all that, but they were not, they were not dressed up in nice suits. It was just t-shirts and shorts, which is really funny to think back to. Oh, they hadn't gotten the suit money yet. That's all that is, you know? No, they're not. <laughs> but I got their tape. They weren't called the Cherry Pop and Daddies. They were called the daddies just the daddies and I was like, just the daddies oh. and i was like cool and then like they blew up a little while later as the cherry pop and daddies and i was like no right i'm like the the daddies <laughs> would they it. would they probably still be like closing out arenas and stuff now with the name the daddies yeah <laughs> at the very least you know you get a nice couple pride appearances and stuff shout out to all my lgbt people but you know that that would have been great like just call the daddies instead of the cherry popping daddies and because that, that just sounds <laughs> that just sounds unnecessarily aggressive you know yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> that might have come from like some corporate jerk saying hey you guys got to change your band name you know if you guys got to make it big like uh <laughs> and they just dangle some zoot suits in front of them and stuff so <laughs> <laughs> Live performances, we, we all love. What's your favorite live show experience? In terms of Scott, the, the Skank and Pickle one was definitely like a moment for me. And I've seen Skank and Pickle play a million times. I actually roadied for them. I got to become friends with them. And I went on a Midwest uh, two-week roadie uh, tour with them I, as the roadie. And that was like a ton of fun. And they were like, they were good. They gotten pretty big at that point. This was like 95. They broke up right before Scott got on, Scott got on the radio. So they didn't get that. that to be part of that but before that happened they were like playing like a thousand fifteen hundred people a night that was those were some crazy shows i think uh i got to see also this band called the special beat in uh, the 90s so the two-tone bands the specials all those bands most of them broke up and that was it and then reformed in the 90s but they never could get the original members back together so just they all kind of just had a lot of issues with each other so the special beat were the specials. So it was members of the specials and members of the English beat. They kind of came together because they had heard that Ska was getting big again. So they kind of put together this like super group of the, the the members that were willing to come together. And they played special songs and they played English beat songs and they played some pretty big spaces. So I went and saw the special beat at the Warfield in San Francisco, which is a, I don't know, I think a couple thousand. That was, that was definitely like one of the most fun shows I got to see back then however i will say though probably my favorite show i've ever seen was not a ska band is i got to see weird al in uh at this nice like outdoor arena in 2012 and blew my mind blew my mind I... what a, what an amazing performer he is i just was like 
I watched three hours set. Yeah, three hours set was not bored at all. So we got to talk about this because like I've also seen Weird Al Yankovic live three hours on stage and one of the best performances I ever sat through in my life. Yeah, I was like, I I did not know that he had that kind of endurance because you you've seen the show. Weird Al changes into every outfit for every parody he has. <laughs> yeah. And he's got all this like multimedia thing going on. It's so perfectly timed. Like as soon as you like, maybe it would find yourself like wanting to look at your phone while during a performance. Boom. He hits you with like a, like an interlude video and you're like back on paying attention. It's just like, it's so perfect. And he's like knocking on 60, 70 right now. And he is still, he's still a very agile performer. Like honestly commend him for that because when he's singing fat, he's putting on that fat suit and he's dancing around the whole time. And then he'll switch it up to Jurassic Park and then there's a dinosaur chasing him on stage. And that is, it's the funniest shit <laughs> ever seen. <laughs> I know. And then um, I think when I saw him, he did the, um, What's that? That Star Wars song where it's like the uh, was like the American Pie parody. Yeah. Yeah. That was like the closing song. And it was like so long and like all the people come out and the different outfits. It's just like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> like that kind of dedication was, was the coolest shit. One, one concert that I saw that in my mind was one of the greatest performances I've seen. There's two of them, actually. One of them was the band The Darkness, uh, who sang I Believe in a Thing Called Love. I saw them when they, their first nice. album came out. And the lead singer, guitarist Justin, got on a tiger and rode it, a tiger that was, stra- that was strapped to a harness and just rode it out into the crowd. And I was like, wow, this, <laughs> like, this is absolutely fucking awesome. And then another one, this is going to sound real cheesy and it's going to date me, make me, I- I'm almost 40, so I don't care. But I went to go see, in 1991, I went to go see MC Hammer, headline a show opened by Boys to Men and TLC. And MC Hammer had, it had to have been like 300 people on stage and just knocked the house down. Like, what, <laughs> I was like, wait, Hammer, like, people make fun of MC Hammer for, you know, whatever, his financial reasons and wearing gigantic pants and all that stuff. But the brother can play, brother can go. Like when it comes to a live yeah. performance, Hammer was the was that guy. Uh, yeah. Oh, I loved I loved MC Hammer when uh, I was pretty young when his first like big the big album with Can't Touch This came out. Yeah. But I yeah I got I ran to the store got it and listened to it all the time. So good. It's so good. And you and you're from the you're from close to the Bay Area, so it's like Hammer was yeah. really appreciated up there. He employed half of uh-huh. Oakland. Just making money and stuff until they weren't anymore but you know you know it yeah. happens music the music biz is the music biz you, you gonna get got so a lot of live performances i've seen have been i've, I've been lucky enough to see a lot of good performances I, I think the worst performance i've ever seen and i've never seen anybody tell me the opposite uh blink 182 was possibly the worst live band i've ever seen in my life Oh, yeah. I saw them once, not on purpose, because I wasn't really into them. Uh-huh. I saw Primus play. Okay. And they were they were the opening act, like the supporting act for Primus. Yeah. And I hated them, especially like, God, their in-between song banter was just oh horrible. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so it's not just me. Like, okay, cool. 
<laughs> they're just like we like butts like that was like the, yeah the, oh, i'm like we love what butts. is happening i'm like please take it seriously because blink 182 are great studio band like you can pick up a blink yeah. 182 album and it's like oh okay this is fine but when you leave them to their own devices without editing and stuff it's, it is absolute garbage <laughs> i'll tell you I'll, I'll tell you about a show um one of my favorite shows that just uh popped in my head as we were talking like a really unusual show so my band, Flat Planet, I used to have a ska band back in the day, Flat Planet, and um, we went on a couple, you know, punk rock DIY tours playing just like wherever spaces we could find. So we played in Albuquerque, New Mexico at this club called Time Out and not a big audience. It was a fun show, but, you know, it ended kind of early and we we're just kind of like, okay, what are we going to do now? And so we walked down the street and there was another club, like maybe two down. And uh, there was like a show. It said like the, the Real McKenzies, and we're like, we just kind of walked in. Uh huh. And there's this band called the Real McKenzies. No audience, maybe three people there. They're all like in traditional Scottish kilts and stuff, mm-hmm. and they're just playing this loud punk rock. But they have bagpipes and um, you know flutes and all that. So it's got. It sounds like they're just like cranking up like Scottish music. And they're just taking shots on stage every other song. And they're just like, fuck the queen. You know, they're just like all this anti-England stuff. <laughs> and we're just like, oh, my God, this band's amazing. And they just played like hours. They were just playing so long. There was no audience but us. And then when they're done, you know, we're just like, oh, you guys were so good. And like, we're getting to talk to them. And they're, they're like a Canadian band. Like it's. it's Wait, what? <laughs> the, the, lead, the lead singer was Scottish. But they're all Canadians, and they were faking the Scottish thing. So, so it was Roddy Roddy Piper on stage or something. Shout out to my wrestling. They fans. did like they did legit Scott Scottish accents, but they like had this whole bit about how they were like from Scotland and they were like they hated England, but we're like and we talked them after they're like, oh yeah, we're from Canada. <laughs> 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 they're like they're all of a sudden their scottish accents disappeared to just being canadians they're like no we're from nova scotia what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes i don't want to meet some of my favorite bands or just any anyone that any celebrity that i like because sometimes it'll take the mystery out of it or it'll just like oh you're just playing a part on stage i thought you were <laughs> Yeah. Oh, we thought it was funny. Yeah. No, no, it'd be we hilarious that, sometimes, yeah. but then sometimes it's like, oh, okay. So they were just like pretending to be Scottish, just anti-English. Now, were they st- were they still just anti-English? Because Canada and England still have a, a, a tense relationship. I'm sure they came from a well. The singer, the lead singer, was from Scotland originally, but the rest of them were not. And I think it probably came from some truth, you know. But I think they were also like, we gotta, we gotta bring this, we gotta bring this up and be a total full on you know, themes sort of sort of thing. They actually got they got kind of big uh, in the punk scene a few years later. It was kind of interesting to see that happen. Okay. But uh but uh, you know just to the just to that punk crowd, yeah. Spoke at the beginning of the show about how ska kinda of originated in Jamaica and the Caribbean. How how deep does yeah. the book go into that history? Um I, I give enough history just to give context. I don't like to I don't go too deep into Jamaican stuff. There's so much good stuff that's been written about it. I think like People have written some amazing books, primarily focusing on reggae. So they t- they'll have to devote like the first third of the book to explaining how ska happened and how ska evolved into reggae. So I just felt like that that territory is pretty well covered. Okay. I just want people to understand where ska comes from originally. 
um, for context because it's very important that it came from Jamaica and that it was this great dance music in Jamaica and that it was fun music that, you know, reggae kind of got a little more serious. Yeah. Ska was more fun in, even in Jamaica back at that time. Sometimes I listen, to, I listen to reggae as a black man, and sometimes I get kind of angry. I'm like, wait, hold on, let me go do something about something. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's funny. Reggae, like in this country, kind of got co-opted by like these kind of white bros, yep. and they like, and they miss the the how political and like, you know, the music's so political. You know, listen to Peter Tosh album. Uh huh. He's saying he's saying no. He says we don't want peace, we want justice. I mean, that's some like powerful stuff that they were talking about, not like. These like kind of California reggae bands that are like, yeah, yeah, good, good vibes. You listen to the albums True Democracy by Steel Pulse, Babylon the Bandit by the same group Steel Pulse. Like Steel Pulse, they were a reggae group that came out of England and they had some extremely deep messages on this. I mean, the lineup never stayed yeah. consistent at all, but the message was. Yeah, Steel Pulse were an interesting band because they were um, second generation. Or they were, um, yeah, they were kids, kids of immigrants. So they had a very unique experience in England of not feeling like Jamaica was their home, right. but not feeling like Eng England accepted them because there was so much racism in England. So they felt that. So they used reggae music sort of to connect to their culture and to sort of comment on the, how fucked up England was at the time towards them. So that was, I, I thought Steel Pulse were like one of the most powerful bands for sure. Absolutely. I, pl I, pl I play Steel Pulse all the time. Like even on my, my other podcast, Steel Pulse is almost always on constant rotation. So bring it back into the book now. Give us like kind of like now the book, book doesn't come out until May. This episode will come out before the book comes out. And I would love to have you on uh, after the book comes out as well so we can like go deeper into it. Give us like kind of give us kind of like more of like a kind of a synopsis of what we can expect inside the book. Like I know that there's some history involved. You got interviews and stuff as well. But what else in there can we expect? I, I approach the book in a, in a unique way. I think uh, it's not done like a traditional music book. I don't go from start to start to finish in a chronological way. Part of the reason I chose this style was that to tell the whole story of ska in a, in a in totally inclusive and chronological way would be either impossible or be way too big of a book for anyone to like want to read ska has been around since the 50s and it has had all these moments in different countries it's had these moments of mainstream popularity it this it's just it's just you know you pick any one of those things and it's an entire book and unto itself. So I didn't really want to focus on any one of those things. I wanted to talk about why ska deserves to be respected. And I wanted to talk about bands that I like and moments of history that I find interesting and even just anecdotes that can, you know caught my fancy. I also wanted to tell my own personal stories. So what I did was I made a collection of essays out of the book. So each essay is a standalone. It, it all... It all goes back to the main theme, and that's ska, and that ska is interesting. And but it's it also each one it stands on its own. So there's certain chapters that are very much history. I talk about in one chapter how ska came to the U.S. in the early '80s, how it these bands and the scene developed and created a very vibrant DIY scene for 15 years, and how mainstream success continued to elude these bands until the mid 90s. So I tell the whole story leading up to the mid eight, the mid 90s when it became famous, like 
why ska never caught on in a mainstream way before then and how popular it actually was. So that's a pretty interesting like historical chapter there. There was a lot of bands that were around in the 80s. And in fact, most of the bands that got famous in the 90s were not the original bands, obviously. I mean, right. the only band, the only band that got popular in the 90s that was around in the 80s was the Mighty Mighty Boston's. Those guys are old school for sure. Okay. They were, um, they started in like probably the mid 80s. Um, those were, they were like hardcore and ska kids. They were like really into both scenes and they were really knowledgeable about both styles of music. And so that you can see that reflected in, in their music that, that they, they're, they play straight up hardcore songs and hardcore styles, but they know like Jamaican music. They know ska and they play some music that's just straight up ska. I have another historical chapter where I just kind of talk about how ska and punk became so intermingled because by the nineties, this, you know, ska and ska bands were playing with punk bands. Ska, we, my ska band, we weren't even that punk sounding, but we were playing punk shows most of the time. We we're doing punk touring. So I talk about the history of how these two scenes became so commingled together. And that is definitely something that also led to how ska became popularized via punk rock. You know, you look at right before ska became mainstream, punk got mainstream. So that definitely created a atmosphere for ska to be marketed because they found out, found out a way to market Green Day and Offspring and these other bands. So it kind of made a little, made it a little easier to market ska the same way. But I have some other chapters, like I, I have a few chapters that are just stories from being a ska musician and touring. So I tell a little, some of those stories in there, tell a few opinion. I have a few opinions about ska. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some people who used to be in ska bands that are no longer in ska bands. That's a thing that gets brought up all the time. I have a whole chapter on that. Right. Um, Oscar Isaac has been outed for his ska past since 2014. He continues to get outed and articles written about him as a ska musician which is hilarious that happened like a few months ago there, there was a whole like like glut of articles that came out about ska oscar isaac used to be in a ska band in the <laughs> 90s but that happened you know in 2015 it happened in 2014 it happened you know happened in 2017 it just keeps coming up it's like and there's no information other than yeah he was in a ska band like there's nothing there's no depth to it besides that it's just like ha 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 look at this so I have a chapter on that. I have a, I have just some just some interesting stories. There's a band called Let's Go Bowling who were a, a popular ska band from Fresno, California. They told me the story about how their van got shot up in Riverside, California after a gig. I thought that was a really interesting story. It's not that important to the the history of ska, but interesting to me. Interesting, so yeah. I, uh, I mean, I yeah. <laughs> so I threw that in there. It's like a couple page chapter. Here's this interesting story. I'm like, you can't just beat us over the head with facts and stuff. Give us some anecdotes and funny stories. I like that. So, and I also, I also went to Mexico in 2019 because Mexico's ska scene is probably the biggest ska scene in the world right now. Really? And I, I wanted to give a little sampling of that to people. Mexico has, before pandemic, they have annual ska festivals in Mexico City that will draw 25,000 people. Oh, damn. Only ska music. And they're, they, they have a lot of local bands that are really popular, but they've become a place where all the ska bands from all over the world want to play. So the big U.S. bands, the big British bands, even like Scottlites, you know, from Jamaica who are still touring, they'll, you know, if they can get on those shows, they will. There's a Pepsi, Pepsi Ska Festival was the, is the big, big one. It's a big corporate event in Mexico. And it, like, it's one of the biggest festivals in Mexico. So Mexico loves ska. And I, I went down there and I, 
got to see. I didn't get to see one of the big ones because timing didn't work out right. I went to a smaller one, but the smaller one was like 8,000 people, which in my mind was like, that's still, I've not been to a Scott Festival. Yeah, yeah that, that, <laughs> that's, that's still a, that, if, that, if 8,000 is on a small side for a Scott Festival, then yeah, you, you say like 25,000 was like the, the large part of it. That's like, yeah, yeah I, I, I'd venture to say that it's quite popular down in Mexico. So. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Some like the promoter. I was talking to the promoter. He's like, "Oh, this is this is a little." He's just like, "This is a little festival." I was like, "Do you do you know that right? <laughs> if this was the U.S. and this this labels would just be like <laughs> running. You know, they'd be here scouring for bands." Yeah, like eight thousand. <laughs> oh, this is just small potatoes. I'm sorry, but you have eight thousand people here. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. What dope? All kinds of all kinds of other stuff. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm 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 truly excited for the book, and I and I want to thank you for being on the show. Like this, this is like extremely eye opening and stuff. Like I I learned a lot today, and I and I love learning new stuff. Uh, before we land this plane, can you please tell the listeners where we can find you? You can. So I have a Substack um, newsletter, and I also have a podcast, which I have posts for my podcast on my Substack. So that's a great place to keep in, uh, following me. It's AaronCarnes.substack.com. And I do an in defense of ska podcast. So we, um, me and my friend Adam Davis, who used to be in the band called Link Eighty, we interview ska musicians, or we also interview people who aren't ska musicians who like ska, and uh, we just talk ska and stuff. So I would recommend people sign up for that. And uh, if they want to pre-order my book, go to my publisher's website at clashbooks.com. It can be pre-ordered now. The book comes out in May, but if you order it from my publisher, you'll get it a little earlier. But if you want to order it from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or, or places that you know you, you're accustomed to buying books at, it's totally fine too. It's all it's already there. And so we're gonna send we're gonna send you an advanced copy uh, later this month. So you know if you want to, if we want to talk again when the when the book's out and you had a chance to read it, I think that would be a ton of fun. Oh, absolutely. We're definitely we're definitely gonna have you on again after I read this because now I'm I'm super duper interested. So. Fellow Aaron American to another Aaron American, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this is going to wrap up this episode of Temple of Geek. I want to thank everybody who tuned in today, especially our guest Aaron Carnes for being here with us today. If you got any questions or comments, feel free to hit us up on Facebook or Twitter using the handle Temple of Geek. If you want to check out some of our other episodes and shows, head on over to templeofgeek.com where you can find all sorts of content that pertains to the world of geek. Aaron, thank you once again for being on the show. Uh, I know it sounds like I'm talking to myself when I say Aaron like that, but <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank, thank no, you for thank you. Me. I truly appreciate it. I learned so much. Please follow us on Twitter at Temple of Geek. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Temple of Geek. And remember to visit templeofgeek.com. Your one stop for all things geek. Goodbye. This will conclude our transmission.